you're building a team in the same way as you would be building a sports team. So you need to think about why I would be excited to be part of that team. What is my goal? What is my mission? Why would I become a better human being and a better professional by joining that team? What was going to be my impact and what's going to be the impact of the people I will want to have joining that team? And then remember that you will need to take time for these persons to feel welcome, to understand the role, the impact that is expected, and what type of supporting functions you're going to have to set around them to be successful. So I'm really a big believer in that bigger picture and accept that you should not take only strikers in your team. So be very thoughtful of the balance you want to strike in your team overall and the type of personality and strengths that you're going to be bringing together. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, leave me a review, guys. It's been a minute. I need something to read to you guys just to help find the podcast and the podcast world. So thanks in advance. All right. I'm sitting here this afternoon with Francois Labori, president of Cognite America. Hi, Francois. How are you? Hey, Paige. Doing good. Thank you. How are you? Not too shabby. It's a lovely Tuesday afternoon. It's not so cold and spring is upon us. So I'm sneezing a lot because <laughs> <laughs> good old Texas pollen. Francois, let's talk about how you got started in the industry. All right. I'm actually by trade a computer engineer and computer scientist. So I had a roundabout way of getting into the oil and gas industry through the software and data part. So I joined Cognite and that was my five years ago, four and a half years ago. And that was my first introduction to the oil and gas industry because Cognite is focused on heavy industries in general. And I did work in aeronautics very early on in my career as a research engineer, but oil and gas was completely new to me. So I have to thank Cognite and my first engagement with Acker BP, an upstream oil and gas company offshore in Norway, to give me my first lessons on in oil and gas. Well, that's pretty cool. What kind of challenges have you faced moving over to this side of the industry? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need more than half an hour for that, for that question. Uh, there, there, is, there is a lot of things I learned. Clearly, coming as a computer scientist to the oil and gas industry, there's a tremendous amount of domain knowledge and understanding that I did not have and I still don't have. So understanding what it takes to actually produce and refine and distribute oil and gas and hydrocarbons is an extremely complex process. And I really had no idea. I had this perspective, and I am ashamed of admitting it, that it was just, you know, putting a pipe on the ground and then there was a Donald Duck type of the oil would be flowing. And then you just had to pipe it somewhere. So there was a lot for me to learn when I joined. Well, <laughs> that's better than most. I've actually heard an executive talk about <laughs> how they thought a well was under a gas station and that's how we got oil and gas. So that's, that you're, you're cool. ahead of it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your current role. Oh, 
I had the privilege of starting with Cognite very early on. Cognite is a software company, but we work with heavy industries, as I mentioned, and oil and gas being the place where we started. It's been a very interesting adventure to understand how data can help this heavy industry change the way they operate. And when we started in Norway, we started working with, I mentioned AKBP, but with a set of Norwegian and European companies. And then it turned out that the technology we're developing was extremely relevant for all types of industries. And looking at it on the global market, there were a lot of needs for using better the data across these industries, and especially in oil and gas. So then we decided that there should be an expansion for Cognite and that America was a great place for a couple of reasons. One, it's obviously, it's the epicenter of the oil and gas renaissance with everything happening in the Permian on top of what we have in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a very important market globally. But more than that, it's also a very advanced market when you look at at least the marketing side of things, the way the technology actors and are focusing on the American market to test not just technology, but messaging. So we felt that we've been fighting, basically we're born because we want things to happen and make a difference. So we felt that it was very important for us to succeed in America, not just for the size of the market, but also because of the symbol it would carry, that succeeding in the US would have a disproportionate amount of attention. Then we basically drew straws and I got the shortest one. So I was sent to the US. <laughs> no, more seriously, it was something that I always wanted to do. I, I worked in international companies before and I've always been fascinated by the American market, the American business culture. And I've had the pleasure of leading team here before. And it was a great adventure potentially for me, for my family to come here and establish the presence. So it's not too shabby living here, huh? It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. And we managed to have colleagues in quite a few regions now. So the team has grown quite substantially also in Canada and, and in Latin America. So I've had the pleasure of actually getting to know more places in the U.S. than I ever did before. Oh, that's great. That just, you know, in the times we're in, it's good to see that your team is growing. Absolutely. Absolutely. The industry that we live in is obviously going through quite a few changes and quite a few revolutions in who we are and what we should provide to the society in general. But ultimately, if you look at the type of changes that are happening, whether that's the talent shortage, whether that's the need for more efficient operation or more sustainable operations in general, a lot of it is effectively going back to better use of data, as we just discussed, to improve all of these things or to enable these things. So we've been lucky to enjoy quite a bit of growth. Yes. That's great to hear. Great to hear. So what is leadership to you, Francois? It's a very broad question. Initially, when I started taking leadership roles earlier in my career, it was very often because I didn't have the skills and I wanted to have smart people to help me do what I thought we should be doing. <laughs> but it was basically putting a team with people that had the skills I did not have because I thought that the outcome was pretty exciting. And I had to be honest with myself as to what I could do and couldn't do. I've played a lot of sports and team sports, and it's a little bit of the same principle. You cannot have only strikers in soccer, right? So, right. so it was about, actually, I thought we could do cool things, but I also knew that I had a lot of limitations. So it was trying to find the best people that I would like to work with in order to achieve these goals. And as my career evolved, I think there's still part of that that is very important. But more than that became also the fact that it was important to also share share the vision to make an impact and make a difference. We say that more and more that people stay in companies because of 
the impression, of course, there's a lot of factors, but one of the most important drivers is that you feel you can make an impact, you can make a difference. So initially, I may have been more centered around the impact itself. And now I think as I grew a bit in experience, I look more as how do I make sure that people in the team also realize the impact they're making. I hope I'm getting better at also communicating and encouraging the team there and putting together the right talent, but also the right structure to recognize the impact that we're making as a team. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is the easiest and the hardest parts of being a leader? The easiest part to be a leader. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the easiest is when you have that click on the vision, right? When you have people that are excited about why we're here and why each and every one of us is here and how we are making an impact and a difference. When you have that alignment, then it's basically just a fantastic ride. Then you just look at people achieving goals, being lifted by their enthusiasm, helping each other and making huge impact in whatever endeavor you're taking. At that stage, basically, your role is to make sure that you just sustain them and they have everything they need in order to just deliver. The hardest piece is, I guess, when that is not happening and when you are for a couple of years at home with pandemic, right? If we mm -hmm. hadn't been in what I just shared with Cognite, right? If we hadn't been in that growth phase with where we could see impact and measure impact, I've had that without pandemic, this situation where things are not working as they should and you need to actually invest a lot of time together and rebuild the team around targets and objective and sharing the vision and, and seeing everybody in the team and making and letting them know that you see them and how they participate to the bigger objective. That is very hard. That is very hard to do. And I know that from talking to colleagues and friends that the, the pandemic has had a very hard effect on some of my friends who are in leadership positions because they did not have that dynamic during the pandemic and they could see that team falling apart, basically. Right. Hey, folks, it's Michael O'Sullivan, the host of Oil & Gas Tech. And I just want to chime in here real quick and let you know that this particular episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders is made possible by Sherpa Coaching. Now, if you are an industry leader, like all of the people that come on this show, then you probably already know about Sherpa. But just in case not, let me tell you about them. With a national network of certified coaches, Sherpa helps people refine their leadership skills and get the most from their talent. They were founded in 2004, and since then, Sherpa has trained over 10,000 leaders and certified more than 600 coaches. Their offerings include things like one-on-one -on -one executive coaching, team workshops, and executive coaching certification. Sherpa coaches focus on habits and behaviors with the greatest impact on individual performance, team effectiveness, and unification. Positive skills plus positive behaviors equals a positive impact on business. And you can learn more at pages.sherpacoaching.com slash OGGN. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, Francois, what would it be? So thinking about young professionals having aspirations to take leadership roles, I would go back to this idea of you're building a team in the same way as you would be building a sports team. So you need to think about why I would be excited to be part of that team. What is my goal? What is my mission? 
why would I become a better human being and a better professional by joining that team? What was going to be my impact and what's going to be the impact of the people I will want to have joining that team? And then remember that you will need to take time for these persons to feel welcome, to understand the role, the impact that is expected, and what type of supporting functions you're going to have to set around them to be successful. So I'm really a big believer in that bigger picture and accept that you should not take only strikers in your team. So be very thoughtful of the balance you want to strike in your team overall and the type of personality and strengths that you're going to be bringing together. That would be my advice. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty deep that there's so many different personalities. That's got to be such a hard decision to make when it comes to making up a team. Absolutely. And you have to accept that a bunch of engineers will ultimately start thinking the same way. So if you really want to innovate or think differently, maybe you need to invite people that come with a different life experience and a different perspective, a different culture. And time and again, it is helpful. Now, maybe they're only there to help the team see differently for a period of time. Maybe it's not like they have a full-time role in the team, but if you look at the way the software team are being built nowadays, and we've used the same type of methodology and approach in oil and gas, when you're trying to make a difference, you will have people that are specialized in building codes, but you will also have designers, you will have domain experts, you may have people that have actually a pure artistic background coming to the team with a very, very different perspective than what a developer or a petroleum engineer may have. And all will work together trying to find how to solve that complex problem that is put in front of them. And I've seen some of the best results when we are working with oil and gas customers by putting these multidisciplinary teams together to solve pretty fundamental problems. Interesting. Interesting. So what book influenced you the most and why? I will go actually with a slightly... <laughs> there's a lot of business books. There's a lot of books about scaling. The Innovator Dilemma was a huge eye-opener for me when I started working in tech and tech companies. But I, I think from a leadership perspective, I really appreciated extreme ownership, <laughs> which is a very interesting philosophy when you are building a startup or even driving a team, a high-performing team. And that touches upon a lot of the things I mentioned earlier. But of course, with a huge emphasis on delegating a lot of the decision-making to the people in the team, provided that the broader mission and the parameters for success are well understood by all. And then we're having a lot of debriefing, a lot of training and rehearsals together in place. I really like how the authors have been laying out these very simple principles that are almost immediately usable from a leadership perspective. What is your most used business tool? <laughs> I love that you call? laugh at all my questions. Video conferencing call? I don't know. It's <laughs> I think there's a few ways to answer that question. But no, video conferencing is pretty useful. <laughs> I think overall is talking with people. If I look at what my days are filled with, it is not filling Excel sheets or PowerPoint presentations, or it's really talking with the people in my team, talking with our partners, with our customers. Talking on podcasts. Talking on podcasts, <laughs> indeed. So, and if you look at it, that's going back to the fundamentals of explaining the vision, understanding what can be in the way to achieve it, how people are making an impact, maybe allowing them to take that step back and looking at how they're performing today and why they are having an impact and what the broader picture is. It's a lot of that, really. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
Who would you say is your most respected competitor? Hmm. We're in a very new market. It's hard for me to say that we have a competitor as such. I have a lot of appreciation for two types of companies that I see operating in our field. And they have taken very different approaches. I see a lot of companies that have built a lot of business knowledge or understanding of the processes. And we go back to, it's not just about putting a pipe in the ground and getting oil out of it. So there's a lot of physics. There's a lot of very complex first principle and domain understanding that needs to happen in order to have safe operations, in order to have efficient operations. And I'm amazed by the ability of some companies to capture that knowledge into simulators, into first principle modelization tools. I'm really, really very impressed by that. And you see them now looking at the wave of machine learning and AI and how they can incorporate and merge the two, so what we call hybrid AI. But I think that that's a remarkable feat of knowledge and knowledge capture and knowledge modeling that they've done over the years. And that continues to be extremely valid. The other category are the enablement companies that are coming, and they will be providing technology bricks that will solve small problems, but will enable you and I and engineers to actually do their job easier and better. So it's a little bit like when the iPhone came to market. Enterprise always thought that that was never going to happen here. But iPhone was fitting this niche where the usability was such that users had to have it in order to perform their job. And you're looking at a lot of these things happening in this asset-heavy industries where you see a lot of new IT tools and a lot of new technologies coming that are making life of the end user so simple on a very isolated fashion that they need to be adopted in the broader scheme of things. And I have a lot of respect for the companies that are building these type of products because they're solving, they're understanding the end user needs extremely well and they're solving it in a remarkable fashion. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think something that kind of terrifies me are the Boston Dynamic robots. <laughs> That's a little much for me as far as <laughs> how much technology has progressed. Yeah, that terrifies me a little bit. <laughs> that one is a really fun, it's a fun discussion. It's interesting to realize when you talk about, so the robots and sport in itself is a feat of engineering. It's a remarkable, I'm you. It's a remarkable piece of equipment. But Ultimately, when you look at how is that really changing the way we work, it's not a straightforward answer. It's actually a combination of, yes, the robot can do 100 times the same inspection rounds and not get tired by it. The robot may learn one thing by looking at a piece of equipment and immediately all the robots around it are learning the same thing. So there's a right. lot of very strong things. But on the other hand, there's still a lot of limitations. Right. Right. First of all, where it can go and cannot go, the type of decisions it can make, and also its ability to handle unexpected events. So right. it comes with fascinating capabilities that will solve some set of problems, but it has to be taken into a much broader perspective. So there's still one, there's still a place for the human being, if that was the question. <laughs> yeah. But it's also in itself, when you think about autonomous operation, it's not just about one robot that is going to solve the problem. Right. You still need to think a little bit how you are augmenting the bigger problem. The goal is to operate safely, right? And how is that participating in a small part to this bigger goal that you're having? And you're probably going to have to have multiple type of robotics or sensors, and you're still going to have the need for humans to help guide and train and help making some of these decisions. So 
It's a fascinating field and it's, I'm glad you bring it up because it's absolutely something that we see across all industries. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What is your most important lesson learned? Hmm. That change is not just a technological challenge. (laughs) (laughs) That is, (laughs) that's pretty straightforward. It is pretty straightforward, but we tend to forget it. Like, we have the well, I mean, it's Why really the, that happening. Well, it's really the only constant if you think about it. <laughs> it is. It is. Every time we know that we have to change, there are a lot of factors. Some of them are extremely soft that make us make the decision to change something or adopt a different way of working or operating or thinking. So it's something we tend to forget in retrospect. But, you know, Internet was built in the 1990s. And it took the best part of 10 years because it became something that started being mainstream and used. And I would argue it took another 10 years because it started before it started being widely adopted. Right? So it took a full 20 years. And yet we feel like that was a revolution. Right. Not so. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's still stuff I don't understand and probably never will. And we'll grow old just going <laughs> like my grandparents. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to learn that. I don't have the capacity any longer. Yes, there is part of that, yes. And it's the same for everything, right? Sometimes it feels so, yeah, I cannot learn about it. I cannot be bothered to learn about it. Or it's, I'm not able to learn. Well, it's not quite right, but the technology makes it feel so intimidating that you believe that it's going to put you at risk, either personally, professionally, or... So there's, yeah, there's a lot that needs to happen for us to embrace new uh, changes. Yeah, Absolutely. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the oil and gas industry? I hope I can help the industry evolve towards, one, the massive challenge we have in terms of talent. A lot of people retiring, a lot of people that left the industry and are not coming back. And yet we need to improve the way we operate in general, right? The whole industry, the whole hydrocarbon industry. Oh, yeah, there's always room for improvement. Always. And, and there's a lot of challenges that are coming our way when it comes to uh, regulations, but also market dynamics that will force us to change the way we work. And that with a talent pool that probably is going to be harder and harder to maintain. And we have to be more sustainable in the way we operate. So that's also a massive challenge that I hope to be part of providing some solutions. Perfect. Well, I know that Cognite is the sponsor of the Oil and Gas Tech Show with Michael O'Sullivan, but what's your favorite podcast? Ooh, so I cannot say that. (laughs) Did I steal your answer? (laughs) I'll actually go with a podcast I enjoy because it forces me to think differently about things. It's a podcast called 99% Invisible. I don't know if you know about it. It's about design and design choice and how design choices are influencing the way you and I live and experience life around us. And it's interesting because it's usually things you don't think about that have a huge impact on how a city is built or how our kids go to school or some of the things that we take for granted around us, which I find fascinating. That sounds really neat. I'm going to have to look into that myself. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me again, Francois. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Cognite, how might they go about doing so? Well, we do have a website. We are. Well, then I'll just put the, (laughs) (laughs) well, I'll do everybody a favor and put a link to cognite.com and then a link to your LinkedIn. Excellent. Thank you very much, Paige. Awesome. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. 
Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.